You're listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from BIV and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Welcome to the show. Today, some analysis of the United States mini deal with Japan and what it means for Canada, plus a look at the first guidebook in Canada that helps Indigenous businesses navigate trade with the Asia Pacific. Join us to celebrate BC's top leadership when Business in Vancouver presents the BC CEO Awards November 13th at the Fairmont Waterfront. Winning CEOs will be honoured at a gala awards dinner where each winner will share their leadership lessons to an audience of Vancouver's business community. For more information, visit BIV.com slash events. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we took a look at what the U.S.-Japan mini-trade deal achieved and what it meant for Canada. We now have details of what was in the deal, and Carlo Dade, Director of the Trade and Investment Centre at the Canada West Foundation, joins me now on the line to talk more about that. Carlo, as always, great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. From your point of view, what is this deal about for the U.S., and what is this deal about for Japan? So the deal has a couple components. There's the economic component and the political component. I think you already ran down the the political components with our good friends at the Asia Pacific Foundation. But for the economic component, the deal was essentially the Japanese offering TPP or Trans-Pacific Partnership access to the Japanese markets, to the Americans, in exchange for access, better access for Japanese exporters for uh, industrial goods, turbines, uh, machine parts, etc. Um, the deal did not cover all agriculture, but it covered the vast majority of what the Americans export to Japan. So it's a huge, huge win for U.S. farmers who have been hit hard uh, by the trade wars. And it gives some more certainty to Japanese manufacturer goods exporters of their access to the U.S. For Canada, well, it's um, it's a blow. Uh, we've been taking a lot of market share off the Americans in Japan in beef, in pork. Uh, we were taking market share off the Americans at the same time that we were being hammered by China. So obviously our increased exports to Japan didn't make up for what we were losing in China, but it was some small uh, recompense. And I think that um, with the Americans having the same exact uh, tariff advantages that we have, we can expect the Americans to come back in Japan with a vengeance to take the market share back. All else equal, can our producers here compete against American producers, or are we significantly going to lose out on what up till now has been a competitive advantage? So you know, I don't have modeling on this. We've done a lot of modeling on the TPP. Uh, we've got new modeling coming out, but I don't have modeling on, on this scenario. So, but based on what we've seen in the other modeling and intuition, I would say that we're probably going to go back to the situation before having the TPP advantage in Japan. So what we're going to lose are the gains we made because of the TPP we'll lose the market share we took from the Americans as they, I think, fight to take it back. You know, the Americans have more resources, more people, and more money for export promotion than does Canada. No surprise. Um, 
so you can expect the Americans to apply all that with the vengeance in the Japanese market. So we may even lose um, a little bit more than just that which we had taken from the Americans. Interesting. I lost track of whether NAFTA or the TPP was considered the worst trade deal in history by T President Trump's standards, but he certainly wasn't a fan of the original TPP. The U.S., of course, didn't join on to the CPTPP. I'm curious, how different are the United States terms with Japan from what was collectively negotiated under that multilateral agreement? They're pretty much identical. Uh, several of the negotiators, the U.S. negotiators who worked on the TPP are taking to Twitter, you know, just full of snark about, gee, I guess Trump didn't think it was that su such a bad deal. He's running around claiming how great, uh, great the deal is. So on agriculture, the deal is fairly similar. There are some things that are missing. Uh, I think uh, some forms of dairy have been left out. Rice uh, was not included. The U.S. had concessions under the TPP in Japan for rice. And I do not believe that's there any longer. But by and large, they got pretty much everything that they had under the TPP. And interestingly for us, it took us two rounds of tariff cuts under the TPP to get our current level of access. What the Japanese have done with the deal with the Americans is to hand the Americans those two rounds of tariff cuts on day one. So you could argue that the Americans actually did a little better because they didn't have to wait uh, two rounds of tariff cuts. They come in uh, right where we are. So that's one benefit. On digital trade, um, the provisions are a bit stronger than some things in the TPP. The Americans made concessions on not getting everything they wanted in the TPP. They were able to push Japan a little harder on some of the digital provisions. And uh, don't ask me exactly what those are. I'm still working my way <laughs> through the 135 pages of the agreement. And uh, we should know too, this is only a partial trade agreement. Right. And that's really critically important. It only covers agriculture, digital services, and some manufactured goods. It does not include all those, does not include services, does not include everything else that is traded. So Canada still has real advantages in Japan. A, everything that's not agriculture or digital services, we can still compete. Uh, not just compete, we have advantages too. The U.S. deal is a bilateral deal. It only works on goods between Japan and the U.S. Our advantage in Japan is that things that we sell them, they can then use to make products to sell to other TPP countries. So think of supply and production chains. The Americans can't offer that. We can. It's a huge advantage. And we've just done modeling at the Canada West Foundation, uh, modeling at a level that's never been done before, the HS six-digit level, to be able to identify specific opportunities along these lines for Canadian companies. So we'll be able to have, with better information and better data, we'll be able to target specific opportunities in a way that we haven't been able to do before. Has there been any indication that we might see the U.S. push for more bilateral deals with other CPTPP countries? Uh, yeah, I certainly think that uh, Japan is is a precedent. There are great markets out there. Vietnam uh, is one. Malaysia. These are countries that would be willing to negotiate with the U.S. for access. 
So I think that this is really a warning, uh, a shot across the bow to us, a warning. You know, we wasted or lost months, I think close to half a year, renegotiating the TPP agreement to stick comprehensive and progressive on it. Uh, and that being the only change, the agreement is not more progressive. It certainly isn't more comprehensive than the original agreement, but we lost and our agricultural exporters and Canadians lost months of tariff advantages over the Americans in that market. And, you know, the time we wasted uh, on that, the time we wasted getting ready for the agreement is coming back to haunt us. It's a warning call that we can't dwaddle when we have these advantages. We've got to move a hell of a lot faster. Do there exist at present, in your view, any barriers preventing producers and other Canadian businesses, exporters, from really seizing the opportunities that currently exist within the CPTPP? No, I think the only barrier is knowledge. And again, to be fair to the government, the Trade Commissioner Service and others are exerting considerable effort uh, to try and get word out and to try and get businesses um, aware of the benefits. The problem we've had is that we simply, as much as it has been done, and a lot has been done, is not enough. Um, an agreement like this, a game changer for us in the Pacific, a, a deal that's like NAFTA, where we can build supply and production chains, requires even more of an effort than what's been done. The second issue is we haven't had the data to identify opportunities for businesses. We can say the business based on traditional modeling at the HS2 code that there are opportunities for you in machine parts and nuclear reactors and turbines, but there are hundreds and hundreds of products under that category and business didn't have the information to know exactly which products really could benefit. Um, but the modeling that we've just done shows where those opportunities are not just because of the tariff cuts, but we've modeled how imports and exports in Japan shift in their entirety because of all the factors of the TPP agreement. So this level of information, if we can get it out, I think can take down the last barrier. Firms can now identify specific products that they export, that they make, and see what the opportunities for those products are in Japan based on the new modeling. And that should take down the last barrier. That sounds like really valuable insight and data. I'm sure our audience would be keen to know when it might be available. Well, hopefully uh, by the end of this month. We not only modeled uh, the advantages for Canada, we broke it down at the provincial level. So we have data for um, Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and potentially um, for BC. The issue we have is that BC hasn't contributed to the work. So um, we're trying to decide what to do with the, uh, with the BC data. So if anyone from the BC government out there is, is listening or businesses that talk to the BC government, you know, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, and the feds have contributed to this, but BC hasn't. As we wrap up, Carlo, what would be the call to action to businesses? We've spoken a little bit about government and their work around promoting trade opportunities, but for businesses in some of these areas where there are clear opportunities in countries like Japan, what's the call 
to action? What should they be doing and considering at this point in time before this U.S.-Japan trade deal takes effect? So the deal may come into effect on January 1st for the agricultural producers. If you're in agriculture, there's not much you can try and work on uh, relations with uh, customers you already have. If you have supply chain relations, if you're putting an intermediary agricultural goods, you can see if you can benefit from that. For other businesses, this is a partial agreement. Step one, the Americans are going to expand it. Uh, they have to. Under WTO rules, you cannot do a partial agreement and leave it as partial. You have to finish it. So eventually, the Americans are going to come in. So for those other businesses, look, with the data that we now have, you can identify products. And if you go to your provincial trade uh, promotion agency, if you go to the Federal Trade Commissioner Service, they will have access to this data and they can work with you based on this data. So that would be my call to action. Second would be firms that export to the U.S. If you're exporting goods to the U.S., we've identified goods in Japan where there will be growing opportunities because of the TPP. So those firms that export only to the U.S., here's a great market, a safe market, a predictable market, a rich market. And if you're going to think about going abroad, taking products that you export to the U.S. and looking for another market, the data will enable you to figure out if Japan is a place um, where you can take some of your U.S. export experience and try to try to enter a new market. Carlo, as always, great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. That's Carlo Dade, Director of the Trade and Investment Center at the Canada West Foundation. We expand our focus from Japan now to opportunities more broadly in Asia and specifically for Indigenous businesses. Dr. Scott Harrison is the Program Manager of Engaging Asia with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. He's co-authored the first guidebook of its kind in Canada. It's a guide designed to help Indigenous businesses leverage Asia Pacific trade opportunities. And he joins me now in studio. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. What led to the creation of this first of its kind guide? So maybe before I get into that, I'd just like to acknowledge that we, we live and work on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish peoples. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, I think, an important aspect to remember as we, we, as we work on a report like this is that Canada sits on many traditional territories of Indigenous peoples across the country. Absolutely. So with that in mind, <laughs> it's the perfect jumping off point for better understanding why you wanted to create a guide like this to help businesses within these many nations engage in opportunities in Asia. That's right. So the last couple of years while we were doing work and research on for this project as well as other related projects, we were seeing kind of three broad findings. The, the first being that there is a extensive interest from Asia Pacific in and around uh, indigenous territories and communities across the country. A lot of investment in um, infrastructure, natural resources, and, uh, and energy projects. And on the flip side, we we're also noticing an increase or, or noticeable uh, uh, interest from indigenous communities and businesses across the country in what's going on in Asia Pacific um, for business opportunities, trade, exports, investment, as well as engaging with indigenous peoples um, in the Asia Pacific. 
And uh, as we saw that, we were noticing two kind of follow-up things. So one is that we're seeing a, a possible need or, or lacking of resources and programming for developing Métis, Inuit, and First Nations-related skills and competencies for Asia-Pacific business leaders. And on the flip side, um, a, a, a need for more resources and programming on uh, developing Asia-Pacific-related skills and competencies for Indigenous business leaders. And with that in mind, we, uh, we partnered with uh, Creative Fire, a communications company based in Saskatchewan and part of Desnethe Development, to convene a roundtable between business le- Indigenous business leaders across the country and Asia stakeholders here in Vancouver and discuss some of the opportunities and interests in, in uh, this relationship between Indigenous Canada and Asia-Pacific. I'm sure there are lots of opportunities, and depending, of course, on the region in Canada and the community, there must be hundreds, if not thousands, of unique opportunities. But broadly speaking, out of those discussions and out of the report, what are some of the general opportunities you've been able to identify in the Asia-Pacific for Indigenous businesses? So so this is the, the tricky part, and is the tricky part in compiling the, the, the guidebook was that like you said, there, there's such a diversity. So in Canada, there's over 600 First Nations or Indigenous communities across the country uh, from coast to coast to coast. And uh, many of the, the shape of these companies ranges from uh, SMEs or small or micro, small, medium-sized enterprises as well as larger businesses. And they operate in almost every sector you can think of. So what often comes to mind is is, is energy and that, um, but we're seeing all sorts of um, companies working in clean technology, technology, online platforms, um, arts and crafts, cuisine, uh, tourism, indigenous tourism in Canada is also skyrocketing and the like. So the opportunities are, it, 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 it's really hard to speak specifically unless you look down at one sector. Fair enough. Do we know or have any data on the extent to which Indigenous businesses here already engage in trade in Asia? So again, this is where a lot of data is lacking in Canada. So the last number of years um, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, encouraging or challenging uh, organizations and businesses to further engage and work with Indigenous communities and businesses across Canada. We're seeing a little bit more research and data come out, but uh, we still don't know a lot. But what we do know um, is coming out between a, a joint report between Global Affairs Canada and the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. And according to their surveys, they're seeing about 55,000 or so Indigenous businesses across the, across the country. And of those, what's striking is that they found about 24% of these companies are exporting. Um, that includes the United States and international markets. Hmm. And that's about double the national average of non-Indigenous businesses. So it's incredibly high. But when we look specifically at Asia, uh, we don't actually know those numbers. It's likely to be a lot smaller or or unreported or just not known yet. Interesting. Is there any path to finding more data on that? Or is it something we just have to assume we won't be able to uncover? I, I think with, with time as, in, as a more organizations uh, partner, with either the federal government organizations or um, organizations like Canada Council for Aboriginal Business or many of the other organizations out there to co-develop um, research around these areas, I think we'll, we'll find that information as it comes. And as Indigenous uh, businesses find more opportunities, they'll likely want to access that information as, as well. So I think it's a win-win situation to have more, kind, more data of that kind. Absolutely. Given the amount of diversity that there is within the Indigenous community in Canada, how does one create 
one guide that might be relevant for more than just one community or one business? So, so yeah, so one guide. So we're, we're looking at this guidebook as a, as a starting point to start a conversation. We realize because of the diversity between Métis, Inuit, and First Nations people in Canada, and the diversity of over 50-some uh, economies in the Asia-Pacific, uh, and different types of economies, even within a single market, we realize that the guidebook can't be everything for everyone. Right. But we do recognize that there will be information in here that's useful, whether you're a, a micro-business startup looking to explore some opportunities or a more established business that's already engaged in international markets looking to expand. So if we have, let's say, we take a, an SME Indigenous business that's listening to this podcast and they're interested, what are some of the steps that the guidebook outlines they can take to maybe start that process or learn a little bit more about their opportunities? So the guidebook is divided into three sections. The first section looks at uh, exploring why the Asia-Pacific might be important for exploring for Indigenous businesses in Canada. The second section, if you want to work on a, a strategy, it goes over some successful tips for developing a strategy uh, for engaging the Asia-Pacific that looks at uh, how you need to think about your industry, um, your, your resources, and your institutions, and how that relates to your strategy. But if you want to go straight to the nuts and bolts in Section 3, we've consolidated uh, resources um, from across the country, federal government, provincial government, Indigenous, non-Indigenous resources compiled in there that you could go in and take a look at what question matters most to you and find resources on that area. Um, I guess the quick tip would be just to go to the section three, the very first um, item in section three just has 10 quick tips to getting engaged with Asia Pacific. And from there, a number of questions to ask yourself. You mentioned before that skills, competency, development is maybe one area where there's room for improvement. In your roundtable discussions, have you been able to identify barriers that currently prevent Indigenous businesses from further engaging in trade? Uh, yeah, the barriers are, are, are immense, for sure. Um, but, but they are being addressed. Mm. Um, so, for example, in the, in the U.S.-Canada-Mexico uh, Free Trade Agreement, there is a clause in there um, that addresses in, Indigenous rights within free trade agreements. And I think that kind of protection is, is, is relevant, and it shows that uh, Indigenous businesses have a place to play in Indigenous foreign policy and Indigenous uh, economic or economic development in Canada. As far as other challenges, uh, there are specific challenges that are unique to each Indigenous community or, com or company, depending on their relationship to their nation, also needing to balance um, traditional or your community goals and, and, and priorities mixed with your, your company goals. So it's not always all about uh, economic profit. It's how do we return this back to the community or help develop our community goals at the same time? And that's sometimes a challenge for traditional uh, programming within the federal or provincial governments that just thinks uh, a business is a business is a business is a mm. business. But I think, uh, I think that's not the case here. One of the stats that really leapt out to me in the report was that the Asia-Pacific is home to 70% of the global Indigenous population. That seems like an interesting opportunity for Indigenous nation-to-nation -nation opportunities in trade. Is that an area that where we're seeing more attention paid and more investment invested? Mm -hmm. So certainly there's more attention to that. The very first uh, federal government-supported Indigenous trade mission took place last year in New Zealand. 
And I think what came out of that, um, re- regardless of the, the challenges or what the participants thought, on a, on a broad level, it's what was found is that the conversation starts differently when it's an indigenous business engaging with an indigenous business. Um, there, there's trust, there's, there's similar shared histories, whether it be colonialism or residential schools or the like, um, that happened in many places throughout Asia Pacific as well as in Canada. So the conversation, there's a lot more trust usually to start off with and the like. And uh, um, there, there is work going on between Canada and the U.S. on different types of nation-to-nation trade, specifically in Oklahoma or Washington State. Um, but in Asia Pacific, there are movements, so Maori in New Zealand and Aborigines in Australia working with their governments is very proactive to engage on international markets. We're seeing this slowly start up to pop up in Taiwan as well um, with Maori, Taiwan, and, and U.S. Uh, uh, business forums and the like. And uh, there is definitely interest in, in many Ainu communities um, in Japan. And just last week here in Vancouver, the, the World Indigenous Business Forum took place. Right. Um, so that was the, the 10th annual in World Indigenous Business Forum, which attracted about 700 delegates from around the world. You mentioned a little bit earlier that one of the things you've noted at the foundation is increased interest from the Asia Pacific more broadly in investment opportunities here that may involve Indigenous communities and businesses. How difficult would it be for an outsider, unfamiliar, say, with Canada at large, let alone our diverse landscape, for them to really understand and get information on the hundreds of nations that exist and how they may be different and the number of diverse business opportunities within those communities? Is mm-hmm. it easy? Is there a go-to resource? Or is that something that's currently lacking? It, it's something that's currently lacking. It's something that I've been thinking about for a number of years now when I was looking at East Asia-Canadian-Arctic relations and how East Asian states are increasingly being involved in, in Arctic uh, issues, whether it be scientific research or culture or, or navigation or the like. And uh, many of these countries, such as uh, China, South Korea, uh, Japan, Singapore, India, are now part of the Arctic Council as observers. And part of that says that they need to abide by the and support the permanent participants of the Arctic Council. And the permanent participants are Indigenous uh, uh, organizations from across the cir- circumpolar area. So I was really interested in how are these countries supposed to do this um, when they're developing off of the national priorities or do, do they understand what's going on, the situation in Canada? And my conclusion was that more resources and, and outreach needs to be, to be done to help uh, whether it be governments or businesses better understand the indigenous situations in Canada. You have this report, which is relatively new. What might we be able to expect next, kind of largely on the the issue and opportunities related to Indigenous businesses and trade? I think that what we do at the foundation will depend on feedback we receive. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had a number of people already ask if we're doing outreach or programming related to this and training uh, programs. Um, But I caution that we won't do anything further on this unless we're invited or, or unless there's an opportunity to co-develop some further resources or uh, programming. That being said, there are ways that we can take, because um, it is an 84-page document, <laughs> um, and we realize it's a, it's a handful. So to, to simplify things, we are looking at developing a few um, 
uh, what do you call it, cheat sheets or quick tips that we can pull out from the guidebook and, and repackage as one or two page documents. Thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been great to have your insight. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Scott Harrison, Program Manager of Engaging Asia with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. He's the co-author of Guidebook for Doing Business in the Asia Pacific, a resource for Indigenous businesses. And you can find that and more information on it at asiapacific.ca. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. All of our episodes are also available at BIV.com slash audio. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.